0: This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Does our nation's constitution require laws to be colorblind? Since the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868, the Supreme Court has said yes, but with some very narrow exceptions. One of those exceptions has been in the case of higher education admission standards where consideration of race, its advocates assert, facilitate a more diverse and thus better learning experience. To challenge that exception for education, an Asian student organization called Students for Fair Admissions took its case to the district, circuit, and ultimately the Supreme Court, where it challenged and won its case against Harvard University and University of North Carolina, convincing the court that the universities failed to demonstrate that the benefit of racial diversity outweighs the harm caused to those less favored. The majority in the case decided that, though universities can continue to strive for a diverse student body, race cannot be one of the criteria on which to base that diversity. While court watchers were expecting wide differences of opinion amongst the nine justices, the six opinions, written in over 237 pages, revealed deep divisions in the Supreme's perception of the role of race in modern American society, to wit, The majority decision written by Chief Justice Roberts makes clear that, quote, at the heart of the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection lies the simple command that the government must treat citizens as individuals, not as simply components of a racial class, unquote. By contrast, the dissents written by Justices Sotomayor and Jackson assert that the majority's decision, quote, cements a superficial role of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered, unquote. On what principles and precedents are each side of this decision resting? And what can Americans learn from this case about the meaning of equal protection under United States law? My guest today is research fellow at Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, Thomas Berry. Attorney Berry will review the details of the Students for Fair Emissions case and share his views on the foundations on which this case was argued interpreting how and why the majority and its consenting opinions differ so markedly from those in the dissent. We'll discuss the implications of the results of the case for future admission committees and consider constitutionally viable alternatives to race-focused selection in the future. When I return, I'll be joined by Cato Research Fellow and Constitutional Scholar, Attorney Thomas Perry. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvagi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by research fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and editor-in-chief of Cato Supreme Court Review, Thomas Berry. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Tommy.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I appreciate you being on the show. This is a big week for constitutional scholars like you, uh, so I'm very grateful for your time today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case, along with the UNC case decided last week in a 6-3 decision. Um, I've had the opportunity to read all 237 pages. I think that was my count. Uh, but of course, I'm looking at it with uh, through a layperson's eyes. Uh, The majority, again, I'll give you some background for our listeners. The majority was written by Chief Justice Roberts and the dissent by Justice Sotomayor. Um, I recommend all our listeners uh, take the time to read the decisions. For me, it lays bare in plain terms, two completely different views on race, on the Constitution, on what constitutes precedent, uh, the values and goals of affirmative actions, all that stuff. It's worth your time, so please read it. But let's start for the benefit of our listeners. Let's start at the beginning. Who were the plaintiffs or what were the plaintiffs in this case? Uh, It was the students for fair admissions. What were they arguing in front of the court?
1: Sure. So it was a group uh, that had several members. And essentially, uh, the members who claimed that they were harmed were applicants uh, to Harvard or to UNC who were rejected. And in particular, they focused on applicants of Asian-American descent who argued that on the basis of their race they had significantly lower odds of being admitted to these institutions than they would have had if they were other races. Uh, And so they focused on the particular statistics of admissions. One of their uh, key statistics that they brought to the court's attention was the admission odds of various races based on academic decile. So I don't know, I don't remember the exact statistics offhand, but it would be something like, you know, an African-American in the top decile has, say, a 95% chance of being admitted to Harvard. An Asian American in that same top decile might have only a 50% chance of being admitted. And so their argument was that race plays a significant factor in many admissions decisions, that it's often determinative of these decisions, and that that is violates the law. And in terms of how it violates the law, it's slightly different in the two cases. For UNC, which is a public institution, they argued it violates the 14th Amendment. And then for Harvard, which is a private institution, they argued it violates Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act.
0: Okay, I want to go um, deeper on this. So uh, uh, let me paraphrase what you're saying. Given that it's uh, assumed it's a zero-sum game, meaning Harvard and UNC have a fixed number of people they admit, Every time you favor one group, you disfavor another group. Uh, and the statistics in the case of uh, the plaintiff support their view that uh, um, uh, one group was discriminated in, in favor of a different group. So let's um, let's go back and rather than assess whether uh, what we'll call affirmative action is a good idea or a bad idea, some normative thing, we want to make sure it comports with the strictures of our Constitution. That's what the Supreme Court's there for. Is it, is it constitutional? That's what we're deciding. Uh, a little bit of a history lesson. Our listeners know about the Bill of Rights. You mentioned um, the the 14th Amendment, uh, given some historical context that came. We, we call those our uh, Civil War Amendments. Uh, uh, give our listeners a little uh, background on how the 14th Amendment is the foundation for for this uh, entire debate.
1: Sure. So the three Reconstruction Amendments, Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth, Thirteenth, all enacted shortly after the Civil War, during the period of Reconstruction, an attempt uh, to bring the South back into the U.S. and to once and for all uh, prevent uh, not just slavery, but also the extreme subjugation of African Americans in the South. Uh, the 13th Amendment banned slavery. The 14th Amendment has several key provisions. It guarantees the privileges or immunities of citizens, guarantees due process of law for all persons, and it guarantees the equal protection of the law for all persons. And crucially, it guarantees it at the state level, whereas previously every constitutional amendment had only applied to, at the federal level. And then 15th Amendment guaranteed uh, the equal right to vote uh not discriminated again on the basis of race so the 14th amendment's equal protection clause uh one of the key historical debates is how broad is this meaning it, it's undisputed that the most direct problem they were trying to solve was racial subjugation the subjugation of african americans in the south you know rampant lynchings with no legal recourse but the text isn't limited to race-based protection it simply says equal protection period um and so the the standard view the view that's come to be accepted is it applies not just to race based discrimination but all sorts of discrimination gender based basis of parentage country of origin etc
0: so um to be clear as you say the historical context is it was immediately following the civil war we had the stain of slavery this was the 13th amendment did away with slavery and the 14th amendment said look Uh, You have to apply your laws in your state, Uh, we are the federal government, but in the state laws have to apply equally to all people, regardless of race. Was there any mention of race? Meaning, did it say, um, did it mention, uh, as we do now, the whole host of different race categories, or did it simply
1: say equal is equal? It doesn't list race at all, no no categories, no definition about how you draw the line, you know, who's in what race, and et cetera, simply says equal is equal. And that's oftentimes the shorter a law is, the more debate there's going to be about what it does. And, and that's been the case for the Equal Protection Clause. And, of course, now one of the key debates is... And everyone agrees it has a non-discrimination principle but the reason affirmative action is a hard case is what if that so-called discrimination what some view as discrimination is for the purpose is for an anti-subjugation purpose and that just wasn't so as much on the radar at the time it was drafted because the key problem was the subjugate, stopping the subjugation of african americans in the south
0: right so it said uh, discrimination it uh, didn't say whether it's for good or for bad. It just said it's all—it's all bad. But let's let's stick to our history lesson and go back to um, post-Civil War. Naturally, uh, many of the states in the South d- that didn't sit well treating everyone equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, despite these uh, well-intended and well—I well, don't know if you'd say real, well-written amendments—they uh, were written and and ratified. Um, did everyone following the Civil War in the Southern states get treated equally? Uh, how did that work out?
1: No, far from it. Of uh, you know, a parchment guarantee is just that—a parchment guarantee—and you need a government that actually enforces that guarantee. And for many decades, the federal government essentially abdicated from any role of actually enforcing equal protection in the states. And there was once, once Reconstruction ended and the federal government pulled out, uh, there was pretty rampant and and horrible subjugation, unequal treatment, uh, segregation. The Supreme Court, uh, to its discredit upheld segregation, as as you know, that said separated, but equal is still equal under equal protection. And so it wasn't really until the 1950s and the 1960s um, that the federal government and the federal courts started to get serious about enforcing these these provisions, both in the courts and also through federal legislation.
0: I think this is important because uh, without giving a a complete legal lesson to our our listeners, what we're talking about is Plessy versus Ferguson, which said, look, uh, equal might mean separate but equal as long as uh, both uh, races are provided the same stuff. Uh, I I think in that case, it was railroad cars as long as one railroad car was as nice as the other. There was no real problem with having a whites only and black only car that that lasted for 50 years. Right. Until uh, the the court or the nation came to its senses and said uh, uh, categorically from experience, separate isn't equal, separate water fountains, whatever uh, lunch counters. It's it's an abomination and and a violation of constitutional principles when we had then ultimately brown uh, um versus board of education to me this is sort of an important uh analysis or distinction which is we had separate but equal or we had separate and it was inherently unequal brown overturned that um what would you say now in modern times uh this forbidden uh forbidding separateness uh where is that taking us now where is brown uh, and 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 how does that shed light on what we're going to be talking about today?
1: Well the key the key debate or the key uh controversy I would say is did brown enact a principle of color blindness or did it enact a principle of what some would call anti subjugation or bringing equality of outcome so one point of view is that it simply said treat everyone equally doesn't matter whether they're Starting on a worse footing or on a better footing, just don't look at race when you are accepting people to a school, giving them provisions, whatever. Just ignore it. That's not what you should be dividing people by. Whereas another point of view says that the reason Brown v. Board of Education was important is because blacks were so much worse off. In fact, their their standards weren't equal. They were much worse. And that you have to to really achieve equal protection, you have to have your eyes open to is one race being treated worse off than another in society as a whole. And if they are, you might have to take remedial measures to bring them to a position of equality. So these are the, the competing views of what is, what is Brown's real legacy and what was its real constitutional holding.
0: It's, it's interesting to me that uh, constitutional scholars, again, we're going to talk about the decision, uh, come down completely differently, whereas uh, essentially Brown said, you can't segregate, you, you, you can't discriminate on the basis of race. Some would say that's a affirmative requirement to positively or affirmatively integrate, meaning you can't merely segregate. You must affirmatively integrate. And I think that informs uh, what we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, that in some special cases, the Constitution does allow race to be considered uh, if it's um, important enough. I guess I'll I'll use those lay terms. Describe for our listeners, when has the, the court said, "Okay, look, uh, the the Constitution is colorblind, full stop. But mm-hmm. there are times when you may discriminate. Share with our listeners either you know whether it's directly relevant to the case or other cases where the the uh, Supreme Court has said uh, discrimination is okay
1: only two so far so this is the doctrine known as strict scrutiny it comes up in a lot of different doctrines first amendment as well it's the notion it kind of comes from the 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 same idea that the constitution is not a suicide pact that every rule no matter how strict and how categorical it might be phrased hypothetically there could be such a compelling government interest that you have to at least temporarily override that right for another interest that is so much at, at least at that moment so compelling that it that it necessitates briefly overriding it, but courts have had a very, very high bar uh, for showing that government interest. So, so far, the two cases where courts have uh, allowed race-based distinct taking account of race and discrimination, one is in the prison setting. If there is an ongoing risk of a race riot, uh, courts have okayed segregating prisoners by race, but only temporarily as long until the unrest ends. And the other is in the affirmative action educational context, which is most relevant here uh, in a case called Bakke. And then, more explicitly, in a case called Grutter, uh, the Supreme Court said that for the purposes of having a diverse student body, and for the purposes of the educational benefits that come from diversity, you can take race into as one factor into account in admissions decisions to ensure that students who go to it, who attend that educational institution are exposed to uh, diverse uh, racial viewpoints and perspectives.
0: Uh, and so in Grutter, we're saying it's there's a is a compelling interest, meaning there is a benefit, uh, a deep benefit to integrating it. As I was mentioning before, it's a affirmative requirement that your education is better if you are racially diverse. Ergo, we will allow discrimination in this case because the the um, benefits are so obvious. Um, are there limits to in the Grutter case when it was decided was it said, OK, you've now got a, a blank check or did we did the court acknowledge that this was potentially uh, fraught with risk or a dangerous uh, decision mm-hmm. precedent?
1: It it was very aware of the fact that this could go too far. And in fact, on the very same day Grutter was decided, there was another case, Grotz, where they struck down an affirmative action program because they thought it was too quota like. So they've essentially said it can't be mechanical. You can't say, you know, every year we're going to admit the top 500 African-Americans, the top 3000 whites. You can't be that You you can't categorize people. Uh, that numerically uh, and just say top X number gets admitted. It has to be just one factor in a holistic review of each individual applicant. Now this has caused a lot of confusion because in effect you see schools that keep having the same racial breakdown year after year. So it looks an awful lot like they're tweaking their holistic review to hit rough quotas, if not exact quotas. But the Supreme Court at least said in Grutter, it has to be person by person, not quota based. And they also said, and this is one of the, key points that came up here that this can't just go on forever with no end point in sight, that the goal has to be reaching a point where affirmative action is no longer necessary and you have a diverse student body without any benefits. And so there's language in in Gruder that, that said you have to constantly reevaluate, see are you making progress? And we hope and expect that 25 years from now this will no longer be necessary. Uh, and there's a dispute of was that a time limit or was that just wishful thinking?
0: Yeah. Well, clearly, they, uh, Harvard thinks it was just wishful thinking because and so same, same with UNC, there's they made no case to say that we're moving in the right direction, meaning we're moving away from using race as a criteria now of 20 or I guess if you consider uh, they're making decisions on who come to Harvard in, in the fall, when they graduate, it will be 25 years since uh, Grutter was decided. So let's let's jump to the, you know, I don't want to bury the lead here. Let's talk about the case itself. Uh, it came down six to three. I don't want to say along party lines. Some of my guests, perhaps you as well, don't see a distinction between right and left, but you know many different uh, um, criteria for evaluating how judges decide. But um, uh, the uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the um, decision with concurrence from Justice Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, and um, Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent with uh, concurrence. I think you call it concurrence, uh, dissent just, concurrence.
1: Just another dissent.
0: Uh, just another dissent, okay. With with uh, uh, our newest uh, Justice Jackson. Um, from my perspective, it lays bare, very, very different worldviews. Um, you know, one that says, uh, you know, I'm gonna paraphrase, uh, the uh, particularly the dissent, uh, and and their uh, uneasiness with the decision, I think, uh, I'll paraphrase and say, in a world where there's no racism and we are colorblind, then sure, no no uh, uh, racial preferences are needed. We don't live in that world. They're absolutely needed. Um, and it, not only are they constitutionally uh, uh, okay, but they're morally required. Uh, I don't know if that, I'm putting words in your mouth, but let, let's start um, with what the court found in, in this decision? Clearly, the headline is uh, they struck down affirmative action. What, what's the gist of their argument?
1: Sure. Well, it's it's a little hard to say to what extent has the court changed its precedence versus is it changing how it's applying it? The court never comes out and says we're overruling Grutter. We're blanket not allowing affirmative action at all. All they explicitly held is that Harvard and UNC's Uh, programs don't meet strict scrutiny. But the test that they applied seems in practice an awful lot stricter and an awful lot harder to pass than the way the court applied that test in Grutter. So I think the conventional wisdom is that for all intents and purposes, Grutter has been overruled, even if the court wasn't willing to go so far and say that explicitly. They essentially held uh, that it was impossible to have objective standards just how much racial diversity is necessary to meet the educational goals how would you tell the difference between sort of the benefits of diversity the benefits of of viewpoints how would you tell are these is this paying off or is this not paying off and they said in every other context of strict scrutiny you have explicit metrics for did this work or not you know for the race riots did we save did we save people from injury or not you can at least do that have that test they also pointed out that the distinctions often seem a bit arbitrary and vague you know in uh asian indians and east asians are all lumped together as just asians hispanic is a huge category that extends from people from spain and portugal to people from south america and people from the caribbean um, and all sorts of distinctions people from the arabian peninsula are often just categorized as white um so a lot of th- people in the same category might lend diversity a lot of people in different categories might not lend as much diversity and so the supreme court said this just isn't a plausible uh dividing line and then finally they focused on timeline and they said you haven't given us any action plan for how you're going to be reducing this from one year to the next and eventually reaching zero and so they said gruder required you to have some action plan for reducing it at a at a distinct and, and sort of clip uh, where this isn't just going to go on for another century.
0: And again, of course, these are research institutions that make the assertion that says there's a tangible educational benefit to diversity, and but they can neither define what the harm is from, let's say, less diverse uh, um, uh, classroom. And measure the educational benefit, not to the individual students, but to the education institution itself. Test grades go up because you have a more diverse class. Setting aside um, that, we're talking about just race, not diversity of any other category, not diversity of religion or, or nationality or even region, just the color of your skin. That alone enhances the educational outcome of everybody in the classroom. Has any evidence been put forward that diversity has a measurable benefit?
1: I I wouldn't feel comfortable saying for sure. I know there was a ton of research thrown on, on both sides of the opinions, and I would encourage folks who really want to dig into this, read all the opinions and look at all the papers that are cited. I will say that uh, Justice Thomas... Had a strong uh, cited to research that has shown, in fact, it can sometimes be harmful to the those the beneficiaries of affirmative action. That essentially there might be a miss; they might be in a, an institution that's not the best fit for them, and where they're not going to thrive as much. So he's held that view for a while. Justice Sotomayor very strongly opposed that viewpoint and and claimed that that research has been debunked. So that's an ongoing um, debate. One of the difficult things here is that schools aren't very open with a lot of their data. They usually aren't saying publicly, you know, what are the how are people succeeding in our classes um, based on race? They don't want to give that data or, or allow people to break it down. So a lot of people have to use kind of side effects or second order effects to try to guess what's actually going on here. And we, in general, we don't see uh, whether grades are, say, going up or down in more or less diverse institutions.
0: Um, A lot of the headlines in in, uh, the press, some of the the, uh, hair on fire kind of uh, assertions. I'll I'll put uh, the dissenting um, justices on sort of pretty strong language in their uh, dissent. Uh, I'm going to quote just uh, right now um, uh, Sotomayor's, um, I believe, I hope I'm attributing this quotation to her, uh, her outrage about this uh, majority decision. I'll, I'll quote, today, this court stands in the way of the stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such crucial benefit. In so holding the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle There in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. The court subverts the constitutional guarantee of equal protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of a democratic government and pluralistic society. Because the court's opinion is not grounded in law or fact, and contravenes the vision of equal equality embodied in the 14th Amendment, I dissent. But I want to point to uh, use that as saying it's saying that the court is breaking with precedent. A lot is being made of that. Do you see this decision as a break with precedent or is it a continuation or a redefinition of precedent?
1: Uh, I see it as a break with the recent precedent. I see it as a break with Grutter and and uh, the Fisher case, which we didn't mention yet, but that was essentially reaffirming Grutter about a decade later in 2016. Now whether that's a good now, uh, the harder question is, is this a reaffirm affirmation of say Brown versus Board of Education 50 years before that, I think uh, many people would say Brown had it right and the colorblindness principle that Brown discussed had it right, and that all of the more recent affirmative action cases, Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher were an aberration from, from that. But I do have to admit that I found the chief's argument that we're not overruling Gruder um, somewhat somewhat implausible. At least the effects are, are, are going to be that uh, programs are going to look very different now than they did before this decision, which, it, it, I mean, that's one way, practically speaking, that's one way to, to define a change in precedent i
0: found it interesting though in a sense um, again i'm quoting uh, the dissent they're saying look um in this case uh, discrimination based on race is justified benevolent or benign discrimination is okay uh, you know bad discrimination is bad good discrimination is good it's interesting though because the court is saying we're going to give the power to the to discriminate to to um these respective schools elite schools arguably um but i also found it interesting in in the argument in the dissent. They justified giving the prerogative to discriminate to these schools based on historical abuse. Meaning, mm-hmm. in the case of Harvard, uh, they had a, a, you know a blatant discrimination, limiting the number of Jewish students they had in the early 20th century. And in UNC's case, they were so racist, you know, Klan members, and they they weren't letting any black students uh, in the university until 1955. And you know, it, it, even then, it was only a few. So they're saying because these schools have been so rampantly racist in the past. Ergo, they should be given the prerogative to decide how to be racist in the future. Isn't that, you know, logically inconsistent? Is is, is, is anyone calling out this this detail?
1: It's, it's interesting. So the Supreme Court has said that uh, in the past you could perhaps put this as a third category of of strict scrutiny. I'm not sure if they've defined it that this that if you yourself have been the victim of racial discrimination, then remedial matters for that is allowed. So. Uh, a particular person who can point to I was discriminated against in X way by the government, uh, it's allowed, it's acceptable to have a, pr- a government program that makes up for that specific act of discrimination. This is a much broader view of that, that it's not necessarily this particular person, but a whole familial chain. And Justice Jackson has a hypothetical about a person who, you know, has a black, an African American in North Carolina whose family goes back six generations through slavery. And at each step of the way, they've been held back um, through discrimination and government policies. So her argument is that that. that, of course, the the most recent person in that chain of generations is going to be held back as a result of that through no fault of their own. Um, I would say that a lot of progressives think that the courts turn towards diversity was an error of its own, in some ways, both conservatives and progressives disliked it for different reasons. It kind of pleased no one. It was originally just Justice Powell was the only one of nine justices who thought it was a compelling interest on its own. They would have defined it much broader to uh, remedy historical discrimination. And I think in both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson's dissents, um, you see that they they take that view as well, that really the court should have long ago taken a much broader view of the benefits of affirmative action, not just for diversity, not just to have a better education for everyone there, but to remedy uh, past discrimination. And it's interesting rhetorically just how much their dissents focus on that notion of, of past past discrimination and past oppression, rather than diversity. Which
0: isn't the issue at hand, right? They're they're making they're starting, trying to revisit uh, an earlier case. They're saying it should be to remedy past discrimination. But of course, if we use already Harvard and UNC could, you know, again, for the benefit of our listeners, if one wants to assert that they're a, a seventh after a long line of, of, of um, you know, chattel slavery and, and poor and, and uh, had a terrible poor up bringing in a terrible school district and all kinds of problems. That's part of an application independent of, it, of one's race. One can still assert and be admitted based on the fact that they've overcome adversity. That's entirely legal. It's just that it doesn't make a generalization to say all black mm-hmm. people have experiences or all white people have had the benefit of of perhaps what a slave owner may
1: have had 160 years ago. It, it, isn't that there the rub? It, it, it absolutely is still available. And this is one of the most common arguments against affirmative action that you can still have admissions based on, uh, you know, poverty based on adversity, even in the majority opinion, it says that you can admit someone if their essay talks about specific ways that they've overcome adversity because of their race. And this is going to be one of the key points likely to be litigated going forward. In fact, Harvard issued a statement less than an hour after the decision highlighting that portion of the majority opinion and saying, we're certainly going to comply with this. The implication being we're going to encourage everyone to to talk about how they've overcome adversity because of their race. Justice Jackson, in her dissent, uh, hooks on that as well and says this needs going forward. Schools need to make use of that. Chief Justice Roberts, in his majority opinion, says, "Hold on, you can't just have an affirmative action program in all but name, but hang your hat on these diversity statements. You can't achieve what we just told you is unconstitutional through other through other means or by another name. So, there's we're probably not at the end of this. We're probably going to have more litigation, especially if it seems like in effect the admissions procedures are are producing the same results that they were previously."
0: So you anticipate my my we're getting close to the end of our time together. My my question, which is, given now that this has been handed down and people are thinking about it, as I say, I, I my email blocks. They didn't send just one. Each dean of each school at Harvard sent emails to me saying, you know, don't worry, we've got this. Uh, we're we're gonna keep going as we were. Um, uh, what uh, what do you think schools will do in in light of this this decision?
1: Yeah, I think that they're going to certainly. Perhaps make diversity statements mandatory In a lot of places they've been optional, but they may well move to making them mandatory Uh, there may well now be much more coaching or much more explicit instructions for students to focus on to signal uh, their race in their applications and to focus on specific ways that it's uh impacted them or that they've had to overcome adversity because of that and we're going to have litigation again part of the problem here is that a lot of these admissions decisions are made behind closed doors and not a lot is public this litig this case only arose after years and years of fighting for discovery of information that these schools wanted to keep secret about their processes and and particular examples of debates they had about whether to admit someone or not so it's going to be i think schools going forward are going to know you know, these conversations could eventually be on the record in in court, and that's going to make it again trickier to explicitly take race into into account. Um, But what we might see, you know, I think the effect will, will be interesting to see. We've already seen affirmative action banned in some states through state initiatives in both California and Michigan, for example, and we immediately saw a very different racial composition in a lot of their uh, university um, demographic breakdowns. So is is Harvard immediately gonna shift to look like those or is it gonna stay looking similar to how it has been? That's a real open question.
0: It, it strikes me also in, in uh, stark contrast, that, because this issue was in, in the courts, uh, there've been a lot of polling going on. It seems that Amer- Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, are uneasy about affirmative action in, in universities. They seem generally like a 70-30 uh, preference to say schools should not use race as, as a criteria for admissions. Um, we wonder what, what what's motivating this sort of push to insist that race or race ratios or race quotas are so important. I, again, this is a difficult question to ask, but... Um, why why is this uh, are we even pushing for this
1: I think I think it's in it's in good faith. And I think just the view that Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson uh, put forward very passionately is the view of a lot of people and especially a lot of people in university admissions and university leadership. That's a view that race does matter in daily life, that that even people born to relative wealth um, still face discrimination based on the color of their skin. And so there's a notion that nothing else uh, can serve as a proxy for that. Uh, I think it's a it's a genuine good faith disagreement. Agreement about both the facts of do, how much does that matter in society, and then the legal question of even if it does, um, to what extent can we have reverse, you know, discrimination as some people call it, uh, to make up for that? Does equal protection clause mean equal treatment or or equal results? Um, So it's certainly a view held in in good faith by a lot of university leadership, but the the concerns against it are also held in good faith. And I think in particular, uh, university leadership has not fully grappled with the harms against others who you really can't say are in any kind of privileged position, such as, you know, first generation Asian American uh, uh, applicants who are finding themselves not just at a lower chance against underrepresented minorities, but at a lower chance of admission against whites, and that to me is very hard to justify um, when you're, you know, giving giving whites a boost up compared to a first generation immigrant just based on racial composition.
0: Right. I think I hope we don't bury that. That uh, they were the 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 plaintiffs were advocating for the the harm brought to Asian Americans. Uh, students, These are 17 year olds who are not guilty of anything, I don't think, who uh, s- scored high in all their, um, I guess, their six criteria and still didn't get in. You know, wh- what do you say to someone who, as we'll all acknowledge, Asians also were subject to um, uh, discrimination, uh, a- anti-Asian laws were among the or, or uh, interning uh, Japanese uh, Americans. You know, these are all horrible things that were done to Asians. They certainly shouldn't suffer from uh, because they're Asian when, when applying to universities. This seems like an absurd a remedy to help people who may not have been hurt and hurt people
1: who certainly did not hurt, right? I mean, I, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a great example of strategic litigation and having a smart strategy, which is that Because of that Asian American plaintiffs are simply more sympathetic with good reason than than white plaintiffs and in a lot of the previous cases we mentioned like Grutter, Fisher and Bakke, the plaintiffs in those were all whites and and I think this is one of the the SFFA the group that challenged this realized, you know. In a lot of ways the treatment asian americans happening are having now there's a lot of echoes to the treatment that jews had in the early part of the 20th century where quotas were capped on them even though they were not in a position of privilege um in society so in the court of a public opinion who who your plaintiffs are and what their life story is can can matter
0: yeah it really, it really um it, it astonishes me that the, the court and uh i'll just finish with the my uh, the uh, final quotation from uh uh, Justice Thomas uh, talking about a summation. I, I found it interesting, and I'm, I'm trying to pique our listeners' interest in reading the, the um, uh, decision. I'll just quote from um, Justice Thomas. So Justice Jackson supplies the link herself, the legacy of slavery and the nature of inherited wealth. This, she claims, locks blacks into a seemingly perpetual inferior caste. Such a view is irrational. It's an insult to individual achievement and and cancerous to young minds seeking to push through barriers rather than consign themselves to permanent victimhood. If an applicant has less financial means because of a generational inheritance or, or otherwise, then surely a university may take that into account. If an applicant has medical struggles or a family member with medical conditions, a university may consider that too. What it cannot do is use the applicant's skin color as a heuristic, assuming that because the applicant checks the box for black, he therefore conform, uh, conforms to the university's monolithic and reductionist view of an abstract average black person. I don't know how you could say it any more clearly than that. That I think uh, distills it out, and you know, uh, the view of the majority. And you know, again, as you say. We'll, we'll give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Both sides see the world very, very differently. These are all nine smart people at the top of their game. It's amazing to me that this this uh, this decision lays bare two completely different worldviews. I, I really help. Uh, I'll give you the last word. Um, you know, are we going to be remembering this? Is this going to be talked about? Uh, you know, months to come, or is this going to uh, just get uh, obscured by the next um, controversial decision?
1: Oh, no, this is this is a big one. I think this is the biggest case of the term. And term, I think people saw this coming from a mile away as the biggest case of the term. And it, and it lived up to that. And the fact that the opinions went for 237 pages shows that the justice is new. This, this is probably going to be their last word on affirmative action for quite a while. And this really is a sea change from the past 50 years. Going back to Bakke in the 1970s, There's been uh, it's been de facto understood that uh, affirmative action, at least for the purposes of diversity, uh, was allowed in public institutions. I'll say one very odd caveat in a footnote, the court okay. explicitly exempted military institutions. So there's not a lot of those, but there's going to be litigation going forward about are they exempt as well? The court just said we're not going to we're not going to touch that. They might have unique interests and in diversity that other institutions don't have. Um, but for the rest of rest of the higher education institutions in the country, this is likely to be a sea change, and and they're all thinking right now about: Are we going to resist this? Are we going to comply with this? Or what are we allowed to do going forward?
0: Ironically, as as a veteran, uh, the uh, the Navy at least was very proud of the fact that nowhere in promotion applications is any mention of race anywhere. So they you know committed to literal colorblindness and and nothing else. So um, uh, maybe things have changed, but. Uh... You know, again, that's perhaps a podcast for another day. I appreciate you taking your time today uh, in a very busy um, uh, constitutional decision uh, season. Uh, Thank you very much for joining me again. Tommy, uh, you're always a wonderful guest to have on the show.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.